Both Jewish and Christian believers affirm what Scripture tells us, that we are created in God's own image and likeness. But far less certain than that affirmation is what it means exactly for that to be true. And theologians, Jewish and Christian, have been writing and debating and talking about that endlessly over the last at least three millennia. Today and in the coming weeks, Dale and Emily and I will um, start the series of messages by each sharing an implication of what we believe it means to be human beings in the divine image. And so today I, I get the privilege of starting, and I want to suggest to you just write up, there's my thesis sentence, that we've been created for a personal relationship with our Creator. Now before we hear today's text from Barb Lawson, day six of creation according to Genesis chapter one in which human beings are created as the pinnacle of creation, I want to share with you a brief summary from a different voice, the ancient Babylonian creation epic called Enuma Elish, which predates uh, what we have in Genesis 1. And it provides a fascinating and stark contrast with the biblical account in terms of human beings. Well, in that polytheistic narrative, Apsu, the male personification of sweet water, and his female consort Tiamat, the primordial salt water goddess, commingled their waters and gave birth to divine offspring. By the way, Tiamat, the female, is imaged as a ferocious sea monster, really scary looking sea monster. Well, they gave birth to many divine gods and goddesses, and eventually there came a time when these young gods, you know, probably um, teenage, adolescent age gods, uh, caused a lot of noise with their partying. With their revelry disturbed the peace and quiet of their older parents, Tiamat and Apsu. And so Tiamat, the mother decided to take really drastic action. She's going to wipe out this whole, create, this whole generation of younger deities. Wow. Hearing of her plan, the younger gods requested that their colleague, the god Marduk, lead them in battle. And he willingly agreed, provided his payment, he be, grant, be granted sovereignty over the entire universe. So in later Babylonian history, he is the head of the pantheon of all gods, Marduk. In a fierce battle then, Marduk and his forces defeat Tiamat and her forces. Marduk then sliced Tiamat, that horrible sea monster, in two. And with half her carcass he created the firmament, with half her carcass the earth. And then he, dis- he assigned the defeated gods and goddesses their pl- respective places and functions in the cosmos. Each got a job to do. Now they protested as divine beings... The work responsibilities Marduk assigned them was beneath their dignity, don't you know? And would mean unending toil. And they wanted just to be able to relax and party. And so in response to their complaints, Marduk created human beings from the blood of Kingu, Tiamat's second husband and the captain of her now defeated army. That ancient text tells us, friends, that human beings were created as slaves, and this is a a quotation from this Babylonian epic, in order that the gods might freely breathe. Actually, it would have been better, so they could freely relax. That's really what they wanted. 
This means, friends, the respective understandings of human beings are inherent worth and function found in Genesis chapter 1. Barb's going to read for us in a minute. And Enuma Elish could not be wider apart. In the Babylonian account, human beings are an afterthought created to provide slave labor. Whereas in the biblical narrative, human beings are pictured as creatures, but regal and godlike creatures who are uniquely capable to represent and relate to the Creator. So with that long introduction, Barb is going to come and read to us day six of creation from Genesis chapter one. And God said, I'm sorry, Genesis 1, 24 to 31. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind, and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw it was good. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over cattle, and over the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning. The sixth day. Amen. (laughs) In the 17th century, the English Parliament called together the Westminster Divines, a group of church leaders and theologians from both England and Scotland, to craft what they hoped would become an official national statement. Of faith, and that uh, that action never took place, but the confession did, and we all know it today as the Westminster Confession of Faith. And along with the confession, for uh, teaching devices, they created a longer catechism, questions and answers for adults, and a shorter catechism, questions and answers for children. And I think we probably most of us have heard the way the shorter catechism begins, and it's wonderful. What is the chief end of human beings? Our chief end is to glorify and enjoy God forever. 
Wow, that's a great way to start. Now, I want to reflect with you today about what it means for us to glorify and enjoy God. In terms of glorifying God, uh, it's basically a question of seeing ourselves, admitting that we're part of the created order, that we are not God, um, and that we realize, and hopefully as you do every time you enter the sanctuary, that you're entering into the presence of one far greater than yourself. In terms of glorifying God, 20th century Swiss theologian Emil Brunner writes, the first and fundamental thing we must know about human beings, we are creatures, and as such, are separated by an abyss from the divine manner of being. The greatest dissimilarity between two things which we can express at all, more dissimilar than light and darkness, death and life, good and evil, is that between the Creator and that which is created. So even though in the text Barb just read, human beings are elevated above the rest of the created order without question, at the same time we are still God's created beings. And like all other creatures, we are dependent on the one who creates and sustains us moment by moment. So, glorifying God means to realize we're part of the created order. We are not the creator. Now, in terms of enjoying God, uh, that is going to reference our unique status as those made in God's own image and likeness. Though we're part of the created order, we have a unique role as those created in God's own image. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, we didn't have time to hear all of that, but God reviews God's creative work at the end of each day of creation, and God beheld all that he made. It was good. And after six days, in the midst of, in the midst of day six, God sort of muses to himself, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. And for that reason, on day six alone, God saw everything God had made, and indeed, it was what? No, very good. (laughs) No, you get a little exclamation part, because you came along, friends. We came along. We are the pinnacle of that whole creation account. We're the point, really. The highest thing in all creation. Notice also in verses 28 to 30, God speaks directly to the human beings. Why? Because we were created not only by God, but for God. As the crown of creation in God's own image and likeness. By the way, this doesn't give us license in any way to disrespect or misuse any part of the created order because we're given this special status in God's own image. And I'm sure Emily will say more about this two weeks from today. Now the verb, or the, sorry, the, the Hebrew word image that we keep dealing with in this text is the word salem. And in the Old Testament that word means a fashioned image, a shaped and representative figure. Now in the ancient world, in the non-Hebrew cultures surrounding ancient Israel, that sort of image represented a deity. It was believed to be the real presence of that god or goddess. Prayers were addressed to it as to the god, 
And its destruction was equivalent to the destruction of the life of the deity it represented. Now that, friends, does not hold true at all when Hebrews use this same word, Salem. As you well know, according to the second of the Ten Commandments, images are forbidden. Images that represent God because no humanly constructive image can possibly capture the grandeur, the glory, the, the transcendence of God. The difference in this case is that God makes human beings in God's own image. God makes us in God's own image. We are not constructing the image. Now in this section of Genesis, the writer uses the word Salem to express a spiritual rather than a literal correspondence with our Creator. This means unique in all creation, we were made for intimate relationship with God. As sentient beings who contemplate life's meaning, we are meant to find that meaning in our relationship with God. So one key ingredient of our identity as those bearing God's image is our capacity to relate to our loving Creator. Augustine, in his famous prayer, said it this way, O God, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. Pascal stated it this way, that within each human being is a God-shaped vacuum which only the living God is capable of filling. Now, in the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the whole notion of enjoying God may seem impious or irreverent or even blasphemous. I mean, what, as a little child, I bet growing up, your Sunday school teacher probably didn't reference God as uh, one to whom, uh, with whom you should have enjoyment. And, and, and have you talked recently to a Christian friend and just said, you know, casually, have you been enjoying God lately? I don't think I've ever asked Dale that. He's one of my best friends on the planet. I, I don't think, I don't, I've never, those words have never crossed my lips. But I'm so glad these people used it. Friends, do you realize that the writers of this, many of them were Puritans. You know all about the Puritans in our national history. Well, guess what? They were Puritans in England before they came here to this continent. And they were stuffed shirts. I mean, stuffed shirts doesn't begin to tell the story, and yet they use the word enjoy God. I'm so glad they did. Wow. God is wants our good. God wants to relate to us. And as you know, one way we both glorify and enjoy God is through the practice of prayer. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was younger and was taught about prayer... It was all about what I should say. Okay, here's how you talk to God. Okay, how do I do that? Okay, here's the language you use. Here's are the things that you ought to talk about. But you know, if our relationship with God is two-way, then I should have equal emphasis on listening for the voice of God, rather than, I know it's not up to me to do all the talking. <laughs> in fact, who's in the superior relationship? Not me. So, a lot of prayer is discerning the voice and the will of God in life. And honestly, friends, I'm not very good at that. I hope many of you are better than me, but that's a challenge in my ongoing relationship with God is to become a better listener for God's voice. 
Evidence that our Creator desires a relationship with each of us certainly isn't limited to this part of the book of Genesis. But in the New Testament, the central fact that we celebrate is God's initiative in pursuing us in the person of Jesus Christ as God sent Jesus into the world to redeem us. And at a key place in the gospel story, according to John, after the Last Supper, Jesus spoke to his dearest friends and followers and said, Those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them. And we will come to them and make our home with them. We will come and make our home with you in your life. Today, friends, in the sacrament of the Eucharist, we celebrate the presence of the risen Christ and we remember Jesus' invitation into relationship with Him. Dear friends, as those created in God's own image for an intimate relationship with God in Christ, it is our great privilege and honor to glorify and, yes, enjoy God forever. Amen.